Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories and welcome to part one of my interview with Jimmy Riggs. He and his wife, Jana, live in Wilcox, Arizona, and they have a really cool family history that they share with us through part one of this episode. I hope you enjoy. So much for doing this. I'm excited to hear your story. <laughs> um, I have family in Winkleman, oh, so that's okay. kind of how I got in touch with like the Myers. Oh, and, oh. and then that's how I got your number. <laughs> so it uh, I was together. wondering how you got my number. I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to talk to the Myers family about this. <laughs> we were um, we were good friends in in uh, at the university, so okay. that was where we got to, where I got to know them, but. They, I had known them, but not very well prior to that because they raised Herefords, and oh, yeah. we were raising Herefords, and and uh, through meetings and, and sales first and last is where I got to know them. But then at the university, I got to know him real well. So okay, and what did you do at the university? Um, I was just a student there. Got my okay. bachelor's degree there, and and. Uh, uh, in in range management, which is the management of our rangelands, so that was uh, a goodly number of the of the ranch owners and, and and ranchers. I don't know about it in other states, but I know along this this Arizona Arizona area and, and, and even into New Mexico, uh, they've all gone on a, at least got a bachelor. Some of them have even gone further than that. But it's all sorts of different different backgrounds. Some of it is agriculture. Some of it isn't. Uh, you, you you just don't know on that. And you know it's it's uh, it's interesting. But the thing is, is that as as people have owned these ranches and working on these ranches, we're you know third or fourth generation. I'm fourth generation on this ranch. Uh, we understood the. the, the value of education and we all went on and got an education in something or other and uh, so it uh, it's interesting kind of the, that's cool to know what they they've done so yeah yeah it's, uh, have you noticed that that education has helped you a lot to manage your own place it's yes it, it has the, the simple answer is yes uh but it's a little more complicated than that um one of the things that you start learning is process as 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 an educated person um, the people that were on these ranches prior to 
to having much of an education. And by the way, my my family, um, my great grandfather, uh, and was a was in a large family. They were Confederate. They went through the Civil War. And they lost everything, uh, literally, and. So they were all just starting out and seeking as they came across. They started moving west um, just because there might have been something. And my family was looking at possibly going into some of the gold fields, not because they were interested in mining gold, but the gold fields were, some of them were developing into having different businesses and different needings and needs. And so even they... My great-grandfather and his family wound up in uh, southern uh, Colorado, uh, north of, uh, west of Walsenburg up in there. And they had a small herd of cattle. Uh, they had, now, the older boys, the older family, and I shouldn't say boys, because there was, what, two boys, two girls. That were, I would put in a group of the older ones. Uh, they already had and were developing trade skills and this type of thing as they were there and uh, uh, so they they could go on and, and, and work and, and so they and in southern Colorado I don't know much about what they did there except that I do know they had a small herd of cattle and in Molsonburg I think or maybe Trinidad they actually had a, a, a a retail outlet of, of uh, processed meats. Um, they had a little herd of cattle, and they just, that's what they did, is they sold, instead of selling cows, they sold sold meat through this, this process. And so, I mean, they were already kind of in the meat industry. In the South, they had worked on, on farms, and actually their dad had owned a cotton farm back there and had lost everything. Uh, but uh, anyway... And, and his brothers, they all had different work where they worked. Some of them worked with horses. Some of them worked with cattle. Horses were big in that time because so much of the the power, the, the energy needed to farm and do move things was horse horsepower. I mean, that's just, that's what you did. You didn't have cars and trucks. You had horses and wagons. And... Uh, and actually, one of the older no, one of the, well, he was one of the older boys, but he was 16 when they came to Arizona, was considered to be the the teamster, and he had three yoke of oxen and a great big wagon. So you know, when they moved the family, so so they they were coming along with skills and, and education all along. As far as a formal education, uh, the one that was the teamster I was talking about, he used to laugh when they got down here. They're his parents, which were my great-grandparents, they saw the need for a little more formal type of education, and so they built a schoolhouse for their children. And anybody in the neighborhood that wanted their children to come to the school, they were welcome to come. And this was before. Yeah, it was prior to to, uh, public schools. Uh, You're you're looking at the 1800s. So anyway, and... He used to laugh, you know, he was the only one in second grade that was 32 years old. (laughs) So, anyway, they went on, and then actually um, he and several of his brothers and sisters actually, and I'm not just sure how they, 
how what the process was, but one of the teachers that my great grandfather imported to, to teach um, was an est- a more Eastern educated woman, and she encouraged these the, the, her students to go on. and And I know he and his two or three of his brothers went on, and they went back to Valparaiso, and they got law degrees. And so uh, that was something that they did. Uh, some of the girls went back, and they actually got nursing and, and teaching degrees back there. So education wasn't wasn't a new thing with, with my generation by any means. It wasn't a matter, are you going to go on to school? It was just a matter of where you're going to go on to school and what you're going to do with it. You know, that was... That was uh, the way it was. So yeah. anyway, I think of of the ten children. I think all but one of them actually got a, a some sort of a degree in in either at Valparaiso or another university. I know my grandfather was the youngest person, and he didn't go back. He went to um, engineering trade school in San Francisco. So and that was what he got his degree in is. Is 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 uh, mining engineering there? So wow. that's that, that's what that, that that's just kind of the education background of the family, then and, and their feelings on it, and how they they look at it as a valuable thing. And it's it, it, a lot of my friends and friends around that are, are ranchers that have been in the business and have been here fourth or fifth generation. Um, they are. A similar outcome, but a little different way of getting there. Let's put it that way. I, I, you know, it's different. We sometimes we compare about it, how what we did, and laugh about it. Some of the dumb things we did and learned. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, you know, it's, we laugh about being here in Hard Knocks and the school of Hard Knocks. And, and uh, but. Um, so and, how did your family end up going from? So from Colorado, somehow they ended up in Southern Arizona. Well, my great-grandfather, there was a, a brother of his that was, actually, I think Jim was a, <laughs> it was his, be my great-uncle Jim. But anyway, again, they were following the, the uh, gold fields around and and looking for opportunities. That's why they were in southern Colorado, though they had a sawmill up there, and again, their background, they were young people when they got there. But they background is, again, you, you learn a lot of things by <laughs> making a lot of mistakes. And they got into some financial problems up there, and so they were ready to leave. They managed to clean up the financial problems, but they were through with whatever it was that they were doing up there. And the brother, which should be my great-uncle now, the brother of my great-grandfather, um, was down here at Dos Cabezas, which was a developing oil field or gold field at the time, and he actually had a lumber yard down here. By then, he had moved down here, and he said, "Oh, there's a lot of opportunity. Come on down." So the family started coming on down. They had no idea what those opportunities were going to be, and they were prepared to just do whatever they whatever they could. Uh, when they left Colorado, they had a small herd of cattle. About I've, I've heard fifty and. They used to call it their milk cows, but uh, one of the fellows that used to write about that said that 
nobody that ever had a dairy or a milk cow in these day and times would even include any of those cows as being <laughs> milk cows. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they produced milk, and, and that's what they'd done there in, in Colorado's. They had done some producing of milk and milk products, cheese and, and these things, uh, butter and these types of things, and for sale. So they brought that herd down, and, and they brought the the one the three yoke of oxen that Uncle William was doing. Why he had them up there in, in Colorado, I don't know. Again, I know they were doing some timber work, and that's the only thing I can think of that they might have been using, but I don't know that. But uh, they they brought, they brought came on down to Arizona, and they again, they, uh, Fort Bowie was where they came. They were actually going to camp there's a, a place on the north side of the Dos Basis Mountains there that was a, a noted spring for a place where you could come in and there was plenty of water. Well, they got there and there was no water. And so they moved on over, oh, it's about another, what, four or five miles from that place to over to where Fort Bowie was at the time. And, of course, the older boys, they were in their 20s by then, and, and, and the girls were were coming along and of course my grandfather was born right after they got there in 1879 so he was not benefiting but they again they were selling their uh, milk products and they were selling beef and and they were also raising cattle and the the some of the soldiers told them about this wonderful place that was just over on the north side of the of the Dos Cabezas Mountains and up along the foothills of the Cherokees, and so that's that's where they decided to move their cattle over and see what it was. And they got there in in August of seventy nine, eighteen seventy nine, and was it was a beautiful, beautiful area of just grassland, rolling grassland, and it backed up against the the much steeper Cherokees. It was just beautiful there were canyons with creeks coming out and the one they came to and it was running water and they set up camp and they were gonna gonna this was going to be the home place well they they august ended and september came and the creek started drying up so they moved up a little ways up the up the creek a little ways well now this will be the place and they started up there and the creek started drying up so they started digging wells and weren't very successful and they were drying up and so they moved on up until they came to what is now known as the Riggs Home Ranch which is about two miles west of where I'm living now and uh, uh, so that's how they got actually established here in 1879 but again the older boys were Doing other trade skills, they 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 knew the timbering industry, so they were went to work. Uh, the one brother, Uncle William, Uncle William, my great my uncle William, um, he uh, he with the auction. There was a sawmill here in the Cherokees, and Tombstone was developing about that time, and the uh, sawmill man came over and said. Uh, he wanted to use the the auction to haul haul his lumber products over to Tombstone, and and again uh, they said yes, and it, it worked out very well for him. But uh, they said, well, you can 
you can rent the the team, but you have to pay the teamster to go along with them. They didn't want you know, and that was so anyway. And they always went two people when they took a load over, and took them about ten days round trip to go from the west side of the Cherokees over and unload their 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 lumber products, and then they never stayed in, uh, spent a night in Tombstone. Um, they they camped out. They'd go in, unload, and then they'd come back out because there were thieves among them, and so that was for their own protection. So, but um, it, it's kind of interesting how they they worked that kind of a situation. And again, yeah. uh, so that's what they were doing. And one of the things that just not too long after the rigs has got here, when they first got here up here. We call it the uh, rig settlement or El Dorado. I don't know how familiar you are with this this area down here, but I'm not. It, anyway, it uh, there's kind of a little area on the west side of the chair. In fact, there's several here, and this is where Pinery and Pine Pine Pinery and Bonita all come out, and and uh, the cattle could do real well in here. But there was a after the rigs came. And partly because of war and partly because of other economic situations, a lot of people uh, were starting to move west in, in areas like this. And not long after the Riggses got here, there, there were uh, a large number of, of people that came in and settled. Now then, again, the Riggses had family. The older boys had skills and marketable skills. And so, yeah, they could freight stuff, and that was a cash income for them. Um, they wasn't long after here that one of my grandfather's brothers, two brothers, his brothers, actually started their own sawmill here on the west side of the Cherokees. And again, they had a big market for it. Uh, even just the people moving in needed it, needed homes, needed you know they they needed lumber products. Was this isn't a really what you would consider a high lumber area by any means, but the Cherokees were ample to supply what the deeds were at that time so but they had to have a sawmill or somebody that could could do that kind of work so they on my great-grandfather's tombstone down here there's a there's a cemetery down here for the Riggs family and uh, great-grandfather Riggs is there and he has the Masonic emblem and and I've heard a lot of stories about he was very supportive of the Masonic movement, and you've got to go back into the 1800s when they were doing it. The Masons were were Masonic people. They were Masons. They knew how to build, and there is a lot of evidence that that my family, the Riggs family, knew how to build. They they knew how to to build barns and houses. They knew how to do. Uh, uh, masonry work. They had a lot of a lot of rock work that they did first and last. That was good rock work. And although the buildings were fairly well all gone, there's still evidence of some of that rock work around. That I know that is what they did. So anyway, and again, it, it allowed them to have a cash income. And it wasn't too long after the Riggses got here that the railroad came through Wilcox, which is about 35 miles from the Riggs home ranch. And, and, of course, in those days, there were no fences or anything. There were no real roads. So when you went to town, you 
took two or three days to go and come back. You didn't <laughs> and did just go to town like we do now, get in our car, go to town for the afternoon, and pick up a few <laughs> groceries and a sack of feed or something. So, but um, anyway, that's kind of the history of where we are and where we came and what can come back. And uh, a lot of the immigrants and the settlers that came in after the races were trying to be more of a subsistent type situation and they just it was too dry they just couldn't make it go you know uh in the 1800s homestead act hadn't really hit this area yet and uh, it wasn't until oh the early 1900s i can't remember just what the date was now that they really started having homesteads but the settlers would claim a certain area and this was my area well they'd start with a few head of cattle which would do do fine, but after a while those cattle would multiply and start reaching way longer areas and one thing and two and um because the Rixes did have trade skills and were would work at that, uh, at, at businesses, they got to where they could buy some of these people out and they kept expanding their holdings and finally in nineteen oh five I think it was the the older of the children and even my 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 grandfather who was the youngest one uh they had they wanted their own holdings and their own ranches and and they had them but then they decided to put them all pool it all together to a larger corporation and if you ever read the book uh we'll all wear sell cats you'll know that there was a movement for big ranches to be put together down here uh the difference with the rigs big ranch was it was family and we were going to be here and stay here the other was out of state money being invested in here Mm -hmm. and uh, when they first started doing that they were having real good years real good grass years real good rainfall boy i mean if how could you how could you lose well guess what it turned off dry like it does over down here that's just cyclic down here and and so some of those investors pulled their money out they were they'd had all of the big profits they were going to get down here <laughs> so, but the regs did stay and are staying and so anyway that's so what the, was the push what was the motivation behind the big push to create bigger ranches they with the railroad and everything they thought they could uh produce beef industry and they were going to ship their products into the Midwest and even into like Chicago, some of the big, big beef markets. Uh, uh, so it's on a larger scale than what they had been doing. Oh, that's right. Uh, with okay. the railroad had opened up uh, a lot of, of market for a lot of different things down here, and and of course with the the dry grass, uh, with the native grasses, they could use the the beef animals to harvest that grass. And ship it. You know, how else are you going to harvest that that grass and and use it? And that's that's what it was. And and uh, and, and and still where I live now, that's still the same. But it's we're not putting together great big large holdings in order to to take advantage of that. Um, they learned that their background was that when they saw all this green grass, how could you? How could you possibly 
not have, you know, it was going to go on forever. Well, the idea that this area is a very semi-arid area and they're not every year is going to produce that kind of a, 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 a product of, of grass to be, be harvested. And they did. They overgrazed it some uh, in, in real tough times. Uh, since that time, most of it has been fixed into smaller ranches. Uh, the Riggs Cattle Company disbanded in the 20s. Uh, some of the family members wanted to stay ranching, which was my grandfather and, my, and his family. Uh, some of them had other trade skills that they wanted to go on and do other things. By then, they had their own families. So it, it didn't it was easy to break it into the smaller units and, and still continue to to hold and so anyway, that's that's kinda of what that was on there. So That's cool. That's yeah. a, you guys have a neat family history. It, it is, it is. And it's kinda of interesting that like a lot of big family histories, it's it's changing now. Uh, there's only a few of us that are still part of the Riggs family that are down here ranching our ranches when they broke them up. Every time they went through an estate, uh, you know, the daddy died and we split it five ways, three ways, whatever. And then the next time they had another a death in, in, in the hierarchy and it split down like another time and it got down to where my little ranch, and I call it little, I mean, I... We graze on about 10,000 acres, and, and uh, it's just barely marginal for a, a family unit uh, as far as a, being able to support a family unit. Um, it, we're right now are kind of in the throes of a real dry site, part of a cycle here, and, and we uh, are 10,000 acres here in 2003. We had to go to 20 head of cows, which is kind of a, how can you do wow. anything with that, you know? <laughs> and, and so it's a... And what can you typically run? Uh, my 10,000 was uh, typically, it, it, I had a fairly consistent performance. I could usually run about a 180, 190 head of cows, a little under okay. 200. So, so what? Um, how many acres was the ranch before it started getting split up? Oh, gosh, I don't know that I have acreage on that. It was or about how many head or it was about 20 miles wide and about 50 miles north and south. So you, you can kind of, yeah, see the whole now there were inholders within that that area. The town of Dos Cabezas itself was an inholder in there, and, and there was a ranch there that was not part of the Riggs Cattle Company, and so. You can see that was the way it, it was, and like I said, early in this system, they were buying up small landholders and, and people that were settling. But in later stages, they were buying up fairly good-sized ranches to keep expanding. So mm-hmm. it's uh, and and again, they it was it was kind of kind of a neat way. So that's the history. That's up to where I am now. I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, working my little old piece here, so I don't know. Neat. I've got a wife and three children, and we told all three of our children that they were going to have to go get a higher, a better education and have a, a, 
a profession of some kind that could support them. So if the ranch really couldn't make it, they had somewhere to go and some way of handling it. And they all did. My youngest, though, is very interested in coming back and being a rancher. And so I, they, he's, he's in the process of, actually, he's moved back here, but he's, he's, um, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how to explain to him about it. He's an IT person, but he's, he's also does other, other things, but he's, uh, he works for the local power cooperative, and uh, he, okay. he does that. And so he's holding out a full-time job, and we were looking at it, and he said, well, how long is it going to be before I can quit my professional job and come back and be a rancher? So, hmm. so Well, good. That's good that he's interested in coming back. It is. He's very interested in it. And, of course, he's he's got a wife and three kids, and... Um, his oldest is a junior at New Mexico State, and the next one's in. She's a junior in high school. And the next one's in his eighth grade. So, you know, their family and the family have all worked on the ranch. They all know what it is. And his wife is from a ranching family that has gone through more or less the same. Uh, I hate to say use the word process, but they, they it's the same set of circumstances that they've got. A big family broke up in smaller ranches and smaller ranches and, and uh, she's a full-time first grade teacher and so anyway, they, when it goes to 20 head again, they're not going to starve to death. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what made you interested in staying in the ranching way of life? Um. Like I said, I I was going to be an engineer, and after about the third third semester of sitting in a drafting lab and not being able to look out a window, I decided that maybe I wasn't in set out to be an <laughs> engineer. <laughs> and so I, uh, um, in my elementary and high school area, I had been very interested in the range management and the managing of our native grasslands. And I had been in 4-H and, and that process, and so I was familiar with it. And I thought, you know, that's what these ranches are going to need to do. And of course, my father was interested in my parents, both of them, my mother and dad, both, and my cousins and uncles. And so I decided to go and and, and change my major in, in college, and I went and got uh got a degree in range management from the University of Arizona. And I, before I even got there, I had already knew from meetings and other things, other contacts, I knew several of the professors there. And so it was it was kind of a natural for me, and, and I did real well there. And uh, I, I, I got some real good background education there on what I was doing. So I was working for the Department of Agriculture when I got out. I was working for the Department of Agriculture, and in uh, it's the Natural Resource Conservation Service now, NRCS. And I was working as a, a range management specialist in various places, uh, Prescott, and then later in Springerville, and so Apache uh, County. And I had told my wife-to-be that I didn't think we'd ever be in the ranch, and 
all of a sudden my parents just had a real good cowboy down here, but he began to realize that working as a cowboy, there was no ladder up. And once you're a cowboy, you're a cowboy, you know, that type of a deal. And and so he was ready to move on and start doing ways of, of moving up, and, 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 and he did. He did very well for himself. But my folks said they weren't going to run the ranch. They weren't by then. It was very difficult to find people that could and would be able to work. Um, the working on a ranch is not an easy thing. It's not an eight-to-five job anyway. Uh, you may not put in a total number of hours that are excessive, but the working hours of when it's when the need comes up, it has to be addressed then. You know, you can't, oh, we'll do that tomorrow type of thing. Now, you have a lot of, we'll do that tomorrow, and it gets pushed off down the line and down the line. You always have something to do down there, but some of the things are have to be taken care of right there. Um, sick animals, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Animals that need to be watched during their first birthing of, of, of new calves. We call it calving. And so, you know, and some of those things, uh, you get up at 1 or 2 in the morning and check your cows and you get up. And we had, when I first moved down here, we used to have a, a pest. Uh, it was a fly that laid their eggs in. If an animal got a little bit of a scratch and got fresh blood, that fly would lay eggs. And the the form that would come out of those eggs was a, was a worm. It was a, what they call screw worms. And it, it actually would twist and twist into the flesh of the animal and eat, eat tremendous amounts of, of fresh flesh, which could literally destroy a, a, a bovine, a cow or a calf or whatever. And so, it's so we, crazy to think that something so small could do that. Oh, it could, but it those eggs would—I can't remember now. It, it's been quite a while back, but those eggs would hatch within only a, a short hour, a few hours, twelve hours, something like that. So, if you got a an egg that was viable and went, those worms would start eating in about eight, ten, twelve hours, and. By then, another fly would have laid eggs. Another fly would egg. Those worms, screw worms, would eventually drop out and morph back into more flies. And you know, I mean, it it was. Mm. A, it, of course, it had to be hot weather, but but we had to doctor those the wounds, wounds, and clean those screw worms out. And we'd get up at four in the morning, so or more, or even earlier, so that we could be on our horse and in the herds of cattle checking them by early daylight. The animals that usually had screw worms would would get would be up all night, but they'd get up and they would graze right then, early in early, early in the morning and because they were they were sick. I mean these screw worms were causing causing pain and everything else and the the cattle then that get just barely enough that would kinda of satisfy them and they might even go to water at that time. But then they would, what we call brush up, they would literally bury themselves in the shade of a bush or a tree or out, and they'd be singular. They wouldn't be as a a group of cattle. 
and finding Deb to doctor him, you had to be there very early in the morning. And so, yeah, we'd we'd be out of here at five in the morning with our horse, and we'd work probably until you know some of the smaller berries. We'd be home a little bit about by noon. Some of them we wouldn't get home until two or three in the afternoon. So you can see that, and that was all summer long. You were doing that five, six, seven days a week, and and. Uh, that's hard to find people that want to work that kind of a job these days, and even back then in the in the fifties and sixties when I was still doing it. So uh, anyway, then in the sixties, uh, early sixties, and through the mid sixties, they developed a way of <laughs> they sterilized male flies, and they would still serve the female, and the female would lay eggs that were non-viable. They, they wouldn't hatch. And so they could break that cycle. And the female would only do that once. Once she laid eggs, she, she would die. And once the, the male serviced her, uh, he, he, was, he was sterile forever, so it didn't matter. But he would also die quickly. And so they started saturating the area with these females that were would be served by the by the male. It 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 broke the cycle of they just virtually they eliminated screwworms in this whole area in, in the southern United States. That's um, cool. How did they it, do that? How did they sterilize the males? I don't know. I think it was a radioactive uh, light or something like that. They raised those males in captivity, and they would they would do that. And I th- I think what they did is take eggs and just ran everything through it. Huh? Male, female, and everything. Yeah. And they they would buy fresh blood from the uh, from the uh, slaughterhouses, and they would raise those those things up and. They would drop them so that those those females, with their their lives, they would be they would be developing in the airplane in the air, getting ready to be dropped out, so that they were really freshly right there when they came out. They were ready to mate, and <laughs> it was it's quite a process. And they kept moving in through Mexico, and they went all the way through Mexico and all the way through down down to parts of Central America. And somewhere down there, they still have a beltway, what they call a, a beltway. And South America still has screwworms. Um, and I don't know how bad. I, I don't know much of the problem down there. But this uh, North America, we eliminated that as a problem. So and we are still warned to keep an eye out because if somebody buys a cow or something that comes in from there, there's always a chance we'll bring them in, and so we are to, we'll have to doctor them. We'll find them as the wound, and we'll doctor them and send the, the larval in, and and, uh, and they'll be evaluated. And if we do get them, we can expect a, an airplane load of sterile flies. Or <laughs> <laughs> when, they, when they come through, there's all kinds of things about being in people's front yards and down the chimneys. And <laughs> <laughs> When they, when they actually made a drop, I mean, they would saturate an area, and then towards the end, they, at first, it was kind of a blanket 
application. And, but towards the end, if, if you all of a sudden had a hot spot of screwworms, you could expect to be really targeted with them. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it's one of the real success stories of, 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 of a pest that we, we were able to do it. And the thing is, is those also who did the deer or the elk and uh, actually coyotes and, and actually some rabbits would come up with screwworms. It was, it was, uh, it, it did, it wasn't necessarily just cattle by any means, so. Huh. That's pretty incredible that they were able to do that. Yeah, it was extremely incre- incredible, and we talk about it now under current political things. One thing, too, you'd never make it now. I it just it just wouldn't happen. I don't know what how they would go about doing it, but they wouldn't do it that way. So yeah. Anyway, but, uh, that concludes part one of my interview with Jimmy Riggs. Like always, if you like what you're listening to, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And to put a face behind the name, head over to our Instagram. It's at cowboystories underscore podcast. And if you know somebody who would be a good fit for the show, feel free to send us an email nomination to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you in two weeks for part two.